Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and today on this edition of This Week in Business History, we are focused on the week of September 14th. In today's episode, we've got a little bit of the Baskin-Robbins approach going, as we're going to be sharing a variety of historical occurrences from across the business world. Golf, high finance, higher education, retail, emoticons, and the Supreme Court. How about that for the spice of life that is variety? Thank you for joining us here today on This Week in Business History, powered by our team here at Supply Chain Now. Let's start with retail. On September 16, 1875, James Cash Penny was born on a farm near Hamilton, Missouri. He had 11 brothers and sisters and one very strict father. In fact, it's been reported that beyond maintaining stringent discipline in the household, James Cash Penny Sr., would make his children pay for their own clothing. The need for a good bargain would perhaps stick with James Cash Penny Jr. for the rest of his life. Penny initially wanted to be an attorney and practice law, but fate would intervene. Unfortunately, the Penny family would lose their patriarch in an untimely fashion. Thus, all the siblings had to find ways to help out. For James Cash Penny, this meant taking a job as a store clerk to help the family make ends meet. Penny's own health problems would force him to make a move, as his doctor suggested that he move west and live in a drier climate. So first up, that meant Longmont, Colorado, where he opened a butcher shop, which eventually failed. Next up, he'd become a store clerk again and eventually find himself in Evanston, Wyoming. The store was part of a small chain called the Golden Rule Store, a dry goods store that sold a wide variety of stuff. Everyone's familiar with the golden rule, right? It centers on treating others as you would like to be treated. It's been around for thousands of years in some form or fashion in every part of the world. And the golden rule store would treat James Cash Penny quite well. In 1902, the owners would make him a one-third partner of a new store in Kimmerer, Wyoming. This store, due to Penny's leadership and hard work, along with local market conditions, would do well. The store would do really well. And Penny was certainly the ambitious type. Just five years after being named a partner, he bought out all the other partners. And shortly thereafter, the Golden Rule store, which had grown to over 30 locations, would be renamed, yep, you guessed it, the J.C. Penny Company. The company continued to flourish, largely due to several of Penny's key management principles, such as one, find talented people, two, 
train them well. Three, sell quality goods. Four, keep prices low by managing small markups. The number of stores reached 1,400 by 1929, but the Great Depression and some of Penny's investment decisions would be devastating. The J.C. Penny stores did okay, but his personal wealth was largely wiped out. But J.C. Penny would endure and rebound successfully. In a how about that moment, J.C. Penny would meet a young Sam Walton at a J.C. Penny store in Des Moines, Iowa. In fact, it's been reported that Penny trained Walton how to wrap a package to minimize materials. Sam Walton evidently thought very highly of J.C. Penny. And years later, above Sam Walton's desk at Walmart headquarters, you could find a J.C. Penny quote that read, quote, serve the public to its ultimate satisfaction, end quote. J.C. Penny would remain chairman of the board until 1946 and then would serve as honorary chairman until his death in 1971. As many know, the J.C. Penny company has fallen on hard times, like so many other retail companies in 2020. In May of this year, the company filed for bankruptcy. In July 2020, the company, led by CEO Jill Soltow, announced a major restructuring, closing some 150 locations and eliminating some 1,000 jobs, amongst other moves. Soltow is the first female CEO in J.C. Penney Company's history, with extensive leadership experience at companies such as Sears, Kohl's, and Joanne Fabrics, Soltau is making some big changes to the organization in its comeback attempt. Reducing inventory levels, cutting costs, introducing new merchandise, and of course, overseeing the financial restructuring. We'll revisit in the months ahead to see if the JCPenney company can rebound as successfully as its namesake. All right, so let's take a break from retail and let's play some golf. On September 15, 1911, Karsten Solheim was born in Bergen, Norway. His family immigrated to the U.S. in 1913. They made their home in Seattle, Washington. Karsten Solheim's father, Herman, was a shoemaker. To help the family make ends meet during the Great Depression, Karsten Solheim would withdraw from the University of Washington and work in the family's shoe shop. The experience Solheim would garner in working with his hands to make things, well, that would pay off handsomely down the road. Karsten Solheim wanted to be an engineer and did just that. And in 1953, he would join General Electric as a mechanical engineer, and he made his mark. Solheim would help the company's engineering team design the rabbit ears antenna that GE's first portable televisions would use. At age 42, Solheim would find the sport of golf and absolutely fall in love with it. It would consume him. It would also make him very wealthy. Solheim worked to become quite good at the game of golf, but he was frustrated with plateauing a bit at a five handicap. So to give a five handicap a bit of context, keep in mind that a zero handicap in golf indicates a scratch golfer, someone that you certainly would never want to bet against on the links. Karsten Solheim was really frustrated with his putting. The putters of the day in the mid-50s drew his ire. So as any true engineer would do, Solheim set out to design and build his own putter. His first conceptual prototype would be fashioned out of a couple of popsicle sticks and sugar cubes. Solheim would build a putter in his garage in Redwood City, California, based on that concept. And when it struck a golf ball, it made a distinctive ping. Thus, a trade name was born, 
Solheim's putters and clubs would all bear the name Ping, but Karsten still wanted a name for his putter. His wife Louise came up with the answer literally. She suggested that since it was the answer to his putting woes, that the putter should be called Answer. Karsten would remove the W from the word so that it could fit and be trademarked on the back of a putter. Thus was born the Ping Answer Putter, which is still highly popular in the game today. In 1959, Karsten Solheim would leave GE and found his own company, the Karsten Manufacturing Company. By 1969, the company would introduce full sets of golf clubs that utilized the innovative perimeter weighting that Solheim had developed. The company flourished from there, and you're going to find ping equipment utilized throughout the golf industry from the world's greatest golfers to amateurs everywhere. In the 1980s, after watching the Ryder Cup gain in popularity, Karsten Solheim would have one other big idea. Why not create a Ryder Cup for female competitors? In five months' time, with Solheim's energy, leadership, and financial backing, the Solheim Cup was born. In 1990, the first ever Solheim Cup was played at Lake Nona Golf and Country Club in Florida, and the United States team would defeat the European team handily. The 2021 Solheim Cup will be played at Inverness Club in Toledo, Ohio, and is slated to run from August 31st to September 6th, 2021. For all of his innovations and contributions to the game of golf, Karsten Solheim would be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2001, just months after he passed away at the age of 88. Karsten Solheim changed the game for the better in so many ways. Now, you may never look at a ping putter the same way again. A few other items to note on this week in business history for the week of September 14th. On September 19th, 1881, the Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama would hold its first classes. Booker T. Washington was then the school's only teacher. Washington was an educator, author, orator, and advisor to many U.S. presidents. He would serve as the head of the Tuskegee Institute until his death in 1915. During Washington's leadership, the school's enrollment would grow to more than 1,500 students and would accumulate an endowment of more than $2 million. Tuskegee University, as it has become today, has more than 3,000 students. It was the first black college to be designated as a registered National Historic Landmark, which took place in 1966. It is the only black college to be designated a National Historic Site, which took place in 1974. On September 20, 1973, Billie Jean King defeated Bobby Riggs in the infamous Battle of the Sexes tennis match. King would win in three sets and would take home the $100,000 prize. And the game was viewed by an estimated 50 million people in the U.S. and some 90 million worldwide. For context, the Super Bowl in 1973 only gained 67 million viewers. On September 19, 1982, Scott Fallman, then a member of the faculty at Carnegie Mellon University, would be credited with being the first to devise and use the smiley emoticon. He said at the time that it helped people on the electronic message board determine serious posts from jokes. Obviously, Fallman started kind of a big deal. Emojis and emoticons helping people find their funny bone since 1982. 
And finally, on September 15, 2008, in what is still the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history, Lehman Brothers would declare bankruptcy. The 170-year-old firm held over $600 billion in assets at the time. The move triggered a one-day drop in the Dow Jones of 4.5%, which at the time was the largest decline since the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. That wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Those were some of the stories that stood out to us, but what do you think? What stands out to you? Tell us. Shoot us a note to amanda at supplychainnowradio.com or join our Supply Chain Now Insiders group on LinkedIn where you can share your feedback and perspective. Hey, we're here to listen. I hope you've enjoyed our latest edition of This Week in Business History. Be sure to check out a wide variety of industry thought leadership at supplychainnowradio.com. Friendly reminder, you can now find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. Search for it and subscribe so you don't miss a single thing. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, hey, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.